invite you to open up the Bible with me to Matthew's Gospel. We're in Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew chapter 5 as we continue navigating uh, through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, looking at uh, His message, His famous message. And today we come to verses 31 and, and verses 32. And if you're using a pew Bible, I think you can find this text on page 700. And 86 or thereabouts, but let's open up the word together. Let's hear from God together and let's do so acknowledging, uh, as we've just sung, that he is a God of great grace, uh, that his grace is unmatched, that his grace is undeserved, that his grace is good, and it is only by his grace that we come before him together even now. And so as you find your place there in Matthew chapter 5, let me invite you uh, to join me standing for the reading of of God's word. Matthew chapter 5 verses 31 and 32 looking at the words of of Jesus. Jesus said, "It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except For sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we turn to you this morning. We cry out to you. We ask for your help. God, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit as we seek to navigate these words of our Savior, Lord, that we might understand them. Father, that we might rest in your love and your character, Lord, that we might bow our hearts and our lives in submission to you for the glory of your name, for the good of your church, for the growth of your kingdom. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Well, John says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And church, as we dive into this topic, we need to both sense God's grace and hear God's truth. We need to sense God's grace and we need to hear God's truth. In an age of casual marriage and easy divorce, we desperately need the truth. We need to hear Jesus. We need to hear the truth. And where where do we get the truth? We turn to the Bible. We turn to the Scriptures. We, we turn to the Word of the living God. And in it, we learn. Here's what we learn. We learn that God designed marriage as a lifelong Covenant commitment between husband and wife. According to the scriptures, according to the Bible, we see it again and again and again. God designed marriage to be a lifelong covenant commitment between a husband and a wife. By saying it's a covenant, we're saying it's a binding agreement between two parties. I don't know about you, but isn't it encouraging when you meet somebody... Uh, who's been married for like 50 years, 60 years, every now and then 70 years of commitment to one another as husband and wife. I met uh, such a gentleman this past week who's going to be celebrating his 70th wedding anniversary uh, in just a few a few days. Just the Bible's consistent on this, that marriage is God's plan. 
It's a plan of, of God. It's not a human invention. Uh, God designed it and, and God is for it. And in an age of lost confidence in the institution of marriage, we need to hear that God is for it. God is for it. God is for flourishing marriages marked by a, a one-of-a-kind unity, a safe and sacrificial love, and a faithfulness unmatched by any other earthly Relationship, according to God, marriage is is good, and yet it so often fails. Till death do us part becomes till the divorce papers say we're done. Families collapse, disappointment, dissatisfaction, and unfaithfulness abound, and as a result, roughly fifty percent of all marriages today end in divorce, and not just in the world. But in the church. And no doubt, the marriage culture has shifted dramatically in recent decades, but easy divorce isn't new. It's not new. In fact, in Jesus' day, rabbis were reading and applying the scripture. They were reading and applying the law in ways that permitted men, primarily men, to leave their wives for just about anything and everything. Some rabbis took a more strict approach, upholding marriage and limiting divorce, while others were extremely lax. And it was the lax school winning the day in Jesus' day. Misreading Deuteronomy chapter 24, to which Jesus alludes here, misreading that text as permission for easy divorce, Jesus' contemporaries permitted men to divorce their wives for all kinds of reasons, from everything to fading beauty to burning supper. All kinds of things. Making every, every legitimate reason a grounds for divorce. And so later they decide to test Jesus on uh, this complicated subject matter, uh, seeing if Jesus can draw up the, the appropriate boundary lines. Matthew chapter 19, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him, as they often did, and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you, re- you, you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two of them will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, Jesus reinforces his earlier words that we've just read from Matthew chapter 5, upholding the marriage covenant and clearly conveying that God hates divorce. God hates divorce. Jesus' marriage theology uh, is a biblical theology, meaning that he anchors his words in what God has already said. Jesus quotes Genesis to build his case. And likewise, later, the prophet Malachi, speaking long after the creation account and a few hundred years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, echoes a biblical theology of marriage. He confronts. Israelite men in his day for failing to love their wives, for leaving their wives and chasing after pagan, unbelieving women. Malachi says, he says, Malachi chapter 2, he says, the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. 
It says, you have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. See, men in Malachi's day were divorcing their wives at alarming rates. And according to the scriptures, divorce is always a result of sin. Divorce is always a result of sin. What do I mean by that? Well, ever since Genesis chapter 3, every single marriage has always included uniting two sinners. So it begins on a difficult note in and of itself, but it wasn't always that way. It wasn't that way in the beginning. Now, we talked about this last week when we considered Jesus' words on lust and adultery. So I'm not going to camp out here, but we live... We live in a cheap sex culture that on the one hand says that sex is everything and on the other hand says sex is nothing. But the Bible suggests it's something. It's something quite significant that consummates a covenant commitment between a husband and a wife that's exclusive and unbreakable because it's meant, designed by God to be an act that binds two people together for life. And yet, and yet in our day and in Christ's day 2,000 years ago, this lifelong covenant commitment is broken constantly, right? It's broken constantly. And so hearing Jesus' response about divorce, the Pharisees push back in chapter 19 saying, then why, Jesus, why did Moses command us? To give our wives a certificate of divorce. In other words, if divorce isn't allowed, why did Moses command it with authority? Jesus corrects them. And he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus says Moses didn't command anyone to divorce, but he allowed it because our hard-hearted rebellion against God produced all sorts of broken and complicated, problematic marriages. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits Adultery. Adultery. Friends, adultery abounds today. And the Bible contains all sorts of warnings against it. Over and over and over again and again and again. A serious and damning sin against the living God. A sin for which Jesus died. A horrific death, meaning a sin for which we deserve The judgment of God. It's a big deal in the eyes of God. Not only does Jesus say that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, verse 28, but now Jesus says divorce and remarriage without biblical grounds also constitutes adultery. In other words, in a matter of words, In just a few phrases, a few short sentences, Jesus states, vast swaths of people are guilty of adultery. 
of breaking number seven of the Big Ten. Now remember, we're not saved by our obedience. We need to lean into that. We need to be reminded of that again and again and again. We're not saved by our obedience, but the saved obey because they have experienced the grace of the God who saves sinners. And so when we don't want to honor the Lord, when we don't want to honor and obey the God who saves, we reveal that we don't know the Lord. And so what does it mean to honor the Lord in our marriages? What does it mean to honor God in this sacred institution, this sacred covenant? What does it mean for divorce? Is divorce ever allowed? What does Jesus mean by except for sexual immorality? And if divorce is ever allowable, we want to get our allowances, not from our friends, right? Not from our feelings, not from our lawyer or from the world, but from, from God. Friends, God regulates divorce. God designed marriage and God regulates divorce. He gives marriage to only God should say, when we can, end a marriage. And I, I dare say, in a room like this, this morning, that perhaps some, even today, are contemplating divorce. Some, perhaps, listening even now, are going through troubled times in marriage and things are not looking good. And if that is you, let me encourage you, let me urge you, let me exhort you and all of us. Whatever the case is, let's submit to the Scriptures. Let's submit to the Lord. Let's hear from the Lord. Let's lay our lives and our hearts and our minds before God and say, God, if you regulate this institution of marriage, if you've designed it and if you're the one who speaks into it and regulates any allowances for divorce, we, we want to hear from you. And according to Scripture, I think we see two biblical grounds for formally ending a marriage. So we want to consider those for just a moment this morning. But I want to begin by saying even in these particular instances, church, God doesn't command divorce. He allows it. Let's be reminded that we, we serve a reconciling, restoring God. A God who's a master at mending what's been broken. And so even when one or both of these grounds are present, God can work miracles in the hearts of His people in ways that restore what was once in shambles. He has done so. He has done so, no doubt, in the lives of some of us and people we know. And where he has done so, he deserves great praise for it. And friends, knowing that this is the heart of God, the desire of our hearts should always bend toward restoration, acknowledging our God can bring beauty from ashes. And yet even so, the Bible provides, I think, two biblical grounds for divorce. So first, number one, adultery. Adultery. The word Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5 verse 32 and chapter 19 verse 9 translated sexual immorality in the NIV as the word pornea. You can hear the similarity to our word for pornography and it is used in the Bible to refer to 
all kinds of sexual sin. In other words, to, to refer to any kind of immorality that is inconsistent with the standard of righteousness that, that God gives. But in the context of these texts, in the context of what Jesus is saying right here, where he's talking about marriage, the natural reading, I think, suggests adultery. A, a violation of the one flesh union between a husband and a wife. Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except... For sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And then again, in chapter 19, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. So Jesus is saying divorce and remarriage is allowable for the one with an unfaithful spouse. And thereby, in such an instant, does not constitute adultery. The adultery has already taken place by way of the cheating spouse, destroying the previous one flesh union. But the man who breaks this command, here's what Jesus is saying, divorcing his wife for trivial reasons makes her the victim of adultery. For in that day, nearly every female Jewish divorcee would have remarried out of necessity for financial support and or protection. And in such a circumstance, the new marriage, Jesus is saying, began by committing adultery for the divorce wouldn't be valid in God's eyes. Now, I think it's worth noting, that's not to say that the adultery in such an instance through remarriage is ongoing. Some have taken that perspective. I don't, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, for Jesus still calls the new marriage a marriage. Anyone who marries, verse 32, implying it would be further sin to end the new marriage. So where such has happened, what does God call us to do? He calls sinners to repent of past sin and to seek to be faithful in the present. Now, in addition to what Jesus says here, the Bible seems to indicate a second ground for divorce. In addition to adultery, second ground, and that's abandonment. Abandonment. Paul addresses this in his first letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he's describing the context of a believing spouse married to an unbelieving spouse, a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. And of course, Scripture has some things to say that about that as well. Cautions us, warns us, commands us not as believers not to marry an unbeliever. But here addresses a situation where one spouse is a believer and the other is an unbeliever. And Paul essentially says, don't leave your unbelieving spouse. The Lord may use you to reach them with the gospel of grace. But if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, abandons you, he says, let them go. You're not bound to hold on to the marriage in such a case. And so, church, these are the two biblical grounds that we see for divorce. And any other ground is adultery, the breaking of a marriage covenant and sin against the Almighty God. Now I realize such a perspective feels quite narrow in our day. Perhaps even unrealistic in our day. But brothers and sisters, let's be reminded that the Lord knows best. 
Let's just be reminded that our God is trustworthy and that he is good and that he is faithful. And so wherever we may be struggling, even wondering how our particular circumstances may fit into God's design, may the first place we turn be to his word. May we turn to his word. And maybe turn to the church, to brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in the faith. May we move beyond it. I pray that we move beyond, that we increasingly move beyond our sort of churchy faces on Sunday morning and that we're honest and real and vulnerable with each other in a way that portrays the kind of community that we see believers experiencing and Christ uh, uh, exhorting in his word. May we turn to one another. May we turn to brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, to our pastors and shepherds and teachers to help us hear and to understand and to submit to the God of the Word. Because marriage is hard. And for any of us to say otherwise, we're lying to ourselves and one another. Marriage is difficult. But God designed it. He's the author of it. He regulates it. And it is good, for he is good. God is good. He hates divorce. He regulates divorce. And ultimately, church, we see in the scriptures that God redeems divorce. And he redeems divorce. Friends, we serve a redeeming God. So whatever your past, whatever your present in the arena of singleness or marriage or divorce, you have reason to hope. As we sang this morning about the call, the privilege to rejoice in the Lord. Whatever your past or your present in this arena, we have reason to rejoice because we have hope. The God of Scripture is a God of hope. A God who gives hope to His people. Hope often realized here on earth through restoration of broken relationships. But a hope fully and finally realized upon the King's return for those who know Him. You see, the reason God cares so much about our marriage covenants is that our marriage covenants picture a bigger, larger, greater, grander covenant. A marriage covenant, the almighty and everlasting God, the one and only God, the one who reigns from everlasting to everlasting, the one who made heaven and earth, the one who fashioned each of us together in our mother's womb, the almighty and ever God, everlasting God makes with his people. And whatever your age, whatever your past, friend, whatever your marital status, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a forever member of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer remains a precious member of the bride of Christ. Every believer, everyone who is bowed in submission to Jesus as King, everyone who has trusted in Christ as Savior, every believer remains a precious member Of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so student. Young single. Husband. Wife. Divorcee. Widow. Know that you are precious. And cherished. And loved. And a needed member. Of the bride and body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news is that Jesus never forsakes His bride. 
Jesus never ever forsakes his bride. The Lord Jesus knows you more fully than any earthly or husband could even know you. And the Lord Jesus loves you more deeply than any other could ever love you. Always forgiving and eternally faithful. He will never, ever commit adultery against you. And he will never, ever, ever abandon you. Praise God. Jesus never forsakes his bride. The words of David Platt, he is an eternal savior. Jesus is an eternal savior who is gracious and merciful, and he is committed to sustaining and satisfying you forever. So church, as we, as we consider Christ's words on marriage and divorce, challenging words, as we consider Jesus' words, let's allow his spirit, let's invite the Holy Spirit, to grip us with God's unchanging grace so that we in turn might spend our lives for His eternal glory. That's why we aim to honor God in marriage. That's why we want to hear from Him in response to His unfailing love and the forever fidelity of Jesus Christ to us. So what does this look like? What does this look like for the vast array of people and circumstances, no doubt, even represented in this room this morning? How do we begin to practically apply Christ's words to our lives? Well, let me give you just a few beginning points. Number one, if single, spend your life for the glory of Christ. If you're single, spend your life for the glory of Jesus Christ. Singleness is not a curse. Singleness, according to the scriptures, is a gift. Both Jesus and Paul commend singleness for some for the sake of God's kingdom. Now, marriage is certainly a gift, but it is not necessary. It's certainly not necessary. God has used, God continues to use, and God will continue to use Christian singles in mighty ways for his kingdom purposes. If single, spend your life for the glory of Jesus Christ. If married, love your spouse to portray the glory of Christ. Portray the gospel of Christ. Love your spouse to portray the gospel of Christ. As stated just a few moments ago, our human marriages are a portrait. They're a picture of a greater faithfulness, a forever love, the love of Christ for his bride, of Christ for the church. And due to sin in each of us, And our spouses, sometimes it's difficult to love one another. Sometimes we don't want to love and serve one another. But when we don't want to love one another, may we love the other for the glory of Jesus Christ. May we love our spouse out of worship for the Lord Jesus Christ. God gives marriage as a picture of the gospel. And so when husbands love their wives sacrificially, and when wives respect and honor their Husbands' leadership, they provide one another and the world a tangible taste of the gospel. And so, friends, let's love our spouse in this way. Those of us that are married, let's invest in that relationship. Maybe this is a call for for us to invest in a deeper way, a more intentional way. Maybe it's a time to begin reading Scripture together, a commitment in that way, or praying together, reading a devotional together, or praying for our spouse. May we invest in our marriages in ways that glorify God. But How often we fail. Friend, how often we fall. How often we neglect our spouses and misrepresent the gospel. 
Anybody ever failed to misrepresent the gospel in your marriage? This guy right here certainly has. How often we fall, how often we fail. In church, where we have sinned, where we have sinned, let's confess our sins to the Lord. Let's confess our sins to Jesus the Christ, knowing he is faithful, that he forgives and cleanses sinners who run to him. So if guilty, repent and live for Christ now. Repent and live for Jesus. Now, if you are divorced for an unbiblical reason and have not confessed to God and to your former spouse, repent today. I think it's a call of Scripture. I think it's a call of Christ. Repent today. Acknowledging past or present sin, turning from it, and living for Jesus now. And if you remain single, cling to Christ. Eagerly waiting For the Lord Jesus Christ, the great bridegroom to appear, joining his people to him for all of eternity. Cling to Christ. If since remarried, love your spouse faithfully now, making every effort to magnify Jesus in your current marriage. See, we're seeing this morning that God designed marriage as a lifelong covenant commitment between Husband and wife, yet I can't help but think there are some listening this morning who are on the verge of giving up hope. Maybe you're on the verge of throwing in the towel. Maybe things seem too far gone, deeply disappointed, perhaps over what you've done or what's been done to you. And if that is you, let me urge you to remember the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. If disenchanted, remember the power of Christ. Let's remember The power of Christ. Friends, let's remember the power of the gospel to enliven cold hearts, to reconcile enemies, to mend what's broken, to breathe new life and to grant forgiveness. Let's remember the power of Jesus Christ. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this is good news for believers. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone The new is here, a new life, new birth, born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of Almighty God. You see, the only way any of us can even begin, the only way any of us can even begin faithfully following God's standard in our relationships, this is difficult. The only way any of us can even begin on that journey is by being in relationship with Him. Friend, are you in relationship with the Lord God Almighty, the one that fashioned your life together and the one who has sent His eternal Son to be your Savior and mine, to redeem your life from the pit and mine, to rescue us from the bondage of sin, to spill His his blood, to have his body broken on the cross of Calvary so that our sin would be paid for, so that we could be forever reconciled to Almighty God and experience the forever love, the faithful love of God Himself. Are you right with Him? Are you in relationship with Him? Are you in Christ? That's how Paul says it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ. Jesus would say, with man, things are impossible, that with God are 
possible? Are you in relationship with the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, one who welcomes us to begin a relationship with Him? Oh God, would you lead us? Would you lead us to be in relationship with you? God, would you lead us to submit ourselves to you? God, would you lead us to believe the the promises of your word and the power of your gospel and the grace of which we've sung? God, news that seems too good to be true. Got a message that so often we fail to truly believe. We think we're too far gone. And yet you are a God who is forever faithful to us. Forever committed to us. Always forgiving us. Continually inviting us to know and to follow you and to experience your eternal love. Father, help us to believe the good news of the gospel. And Lord, where we don't, lead us. Lord, convict us, change us, shape us that we might confess our sins, that we might repent and trust in you today. And so, Father, for anyone gathered this morning who has not trusted in you, Lord, may today be the day of salvation. May your spirit impress upon them their need for you, that they might confess your sins and acknowledge that Christ is Savior and bow their hearts and their lives before you. And God, where we are struggling to apply the truths of your word to our own relationships, especially our marriages. Father, may your spirit grant us wisdom. May your spirit grant us grace. May your spirit guide us to live for the glory of Christ. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.